few years ago, I attended a local luncheon for pastors and other ministry leaders in the Sacramento region. Seated around the table with five or six others I hadn't met before, I turned to the man on my right and just struck up a conversation. After the uh, customary pleasantries, he began telling me about the healing ministry at his church. And he shared with me many testimonies of people who had once been diseased or infirm in some way, but had been miraculously healed through their ministry. And I listened attentively. I was genuinely interested, but I was pondering or wondering, how do I respond to something that seems so far removed from my personal experience? And finally, uh, being curious and, and, uh, and really wanting to be respectful as possible, I, I just asked him, what do you do with those people who aren't healed, who don't get better, but worse? How do you deal with with those, how do you deal with them and with those around them, friends and family members and others in the church, how do you deal with them in their grief, especially when it seems that their hopes have been dashed? And I could tell that I caught him off guard. I wasn't trying to catch him off guard, I promise. But I caught him off guard nonetheless. And he went from excited to unsure and then maybe even slightly irritated in a matter of a few seconds. And then he said to me, he said, we try not to think about those who aren't healed, about those who don't get better. We've just learned that it's better to focus on those who do. And so obviously his response left me wanting. And the conversation came to an abrupt end. But his response isn't surprising. At least on some level, it's not surprising. Frankly, none of us like talking about things that don't go as we hope or plan. None of us do. Uh, none of us like to focus on that especially when it comes to our personal well-being, none of us like to admit that God may have a different plan, even one that may include pain and sorrow. We just don't like to go there. 
Well, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus experienced this firsthand. So John 11 begins with Lazarus being very sick and his sisters being very concerned. They send word to Jesus to inform him of the situation. But surprisingly, as we read there in verses in verse six, surprisingly, he doesn't respond as we might expect. Certainly not as they expected. He loves them dearly, yet he waits two days longer before going to them, apparently until Lazarus had died. And the reason he waited, we're told, was for the glory of God, verse 4, and for the good of God's people, namely the strengthening of their faith. We see a glimpse of that in verse 15. You see, God's glory was to be revealed in and through Lazarus' death, not apart from it. And when God's glory was seen, as we will see in the coming weeks, when God's glory is seen in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it caused many to place their faith in Christ and it strengthened the faith who already trusted Christ. In other words, this is so, this is just so important to grasp and sometimes hard to grasp, but so true. In other words, there are some things we learn about God, about His power and His love and His eternal purposes only through suffering. There are times when, and we were talking to the elders this morning before prayer, there are times when we see when we when we when we see facets of God's glory and the only way we can see those facets of God's glory is only or to see them best is only through our sorrow and it's love on God's part to wean us It is love on God's part to wean us from those temporal things we disproportionately depend on so that we can depend upon Him always and forever. That's what Martha and Mary and others would soon discover And in today's text, verses 17 through 37, Jesus ministers to each of these sisters personally. And in doing so, I want us to see that he ministers to us all. He ministers to each of these sisters personally. And in doing so, he ministers to us all because we have all been in situations like theirs. The details may not be exactly the same, but the situation is essentially the same. We we have all experienced some degree of pain and suffering. We live in a broken, fallen world where sin and sin's curse is readily apparent by us all. And so the same week that we celebrate the life of Elizabeth Elliot we also grieve 
the tragic loss of life in Charleston, South Carolina. But there's hope. And here's the point. There's hope because Jesus Christ comes to us and calls for us and comforts us in our grief with his gospel. Comes to us, calls for us, comforts us in our grief. Right there, right in the middle of it. With, with his gospel. Verse 17 says that Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days before Jesus arrived. And four days is significant because apparently some Jews believed that the soul lingered around the body up to three days after death, some believed. Meaning that some thought that a person, though appearing to be dead, could actually come back to life within those first three days. I'm not sure why they believe this or where this belief originated because, uh, because I, I, there's been no record of this ever happening, at least not that I was able to, to find. But nonetheless, some uh, in the day, some apparently believed this. And so maybe when John says that Jesus didn't arrive until day four, he's stressing the fact that Lazarus is most definitely dead. That there's no coming back. That he's dead, dead, with no hope of, of new life. I think this mention of four days also gives us a window into the magnitude of the sisters' grief. Now, certainly they were grieving when Lazarus was sick. Certainly they grieved when Lazarus died. But maybe, whether they believed it or not, uh, maybe they did cling to some sliver of hope. But when day three gave way to day four, that hope certainly vanished and their grief no doubt intensified. And if you've ever lost a loved one, you know very well this emotional roller coaster, this back and forth between grief and hope, right? And so, so one can only imagine the depths of despair Martha and Mary were enduring. And by this time, verse 19, many had come to console them. Jesus came as well, and in verses 20 through 27, he meets with Martha. Then in verses 28 through 37, he meets with Mary. He meets with both sisters individually and tends to them personally. He meets them in their grief to minister, it seems, to their specific need. Both sisters... Uh, begin by saying exactly the same thing to Jesus, right? We see that in verse 21 and again in verse 32. They say exactly the same thing to Jesus, word for word. But I want us to notice how Jesus answers and interacts with each sister in two very different ways. 
And both are very, very important. Verse 20. First, we're going to look at this encounter between Jesus and Martha. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha gets word that Jesus is approaching and she goes to him. She's distraught, understandably, and she's disappointed not only by the situation, but by Christ's response to the situation thus far. And she lets him know. She lets him know she's disappointed. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You've been there, no doubt. We have been there. We can relate. Times when, when you reach out to the Lord for help, but help doesn't come as you expect it should. You wonder if God's paying attention, if He hears your prayers, and if He really cares. After all, you think, right? After all, you think, if I were God and, and I loved me as much as I'm told that God loves me, I would come to my aid quickly and I would fix the situation immediately. Right? We may never actually voice that, but we thank it. Sometimes we assume that because we can't see God working, He isn't working. And I think that's what Martha was thinking. She had seen Jesus heal before, or at least she heard the accounts of the many accounts of Jesus' many healings. So if Jesus, I'm just trying to put myself in her, her mind, if Jesus would heal a complete stranger whom he doesn't know, certainly he will heal a close friend whom he loves so much. Martha was expecting things to get better, not worse. It's one thing that Lazarus was sick. That was bad. But it's something else entirely that Lazarus is dead. That's much, much worse. At least from her perspective. But please see that she still believed. I love this. Her statement in verse 21 is as much an expression of faith as it is disappointment. She knows. She knows that if that she knows that Jesus is more than able to heal her brother and she believes, she genuinely believes that he would have healed her brother if he had been present. That's faith. And it's faith when she says to Christ in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so the application here is that faith 
in God doesn't depend on circumstance. From Martha's perspective, things went from bad to worse, but her faith remained intact. You can still trust God and believe in God's love and God's power, even when it seems like God has failed you. He never really fails you, of course, but sometimes it may seem that way. And Martha is a great example of faith that endures and endeavors to trust Christ even when the situation worsens. And then I'm also just struck and encouraged by the fact, see this, that Jesus seems okay with letting Martha express her faith in a way that allows her to work through her disappointment. He doesn't fault her or defend himself. Instead, he reassures her. He redirects her attention. And he renews her hope. Your brother will rise again. He says to her in verse 23, to which she replies, I know, I know. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So you see, Martha is thinking long term. She's thinking of some of, of the future final resurrection, and she knows that Lazarus will rise again someday. But, but Jesus isn't talking about the future only. He's talking about the here and now. And so in verses 25 and 26, we find the fifth of seven great I am declarations found in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now we'll take a closer look into this statement next week, but for now I want you to notice that Jesus brings the future reality into her present circumstance. You see that? Jesus brings the future reality into her present circumstance. In other words, it's not just about what will be, but about what is. It's as if he's saying, Martha, I got this. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Martha, you're thinking about some future reality, but I am the one who makes that a reality. And I'm standing right here before you. In other words, he redirected her focus from her circumstances to himself. And by doing this, he reassures Martha. And he renews her hope. Do you believe this? 
he asks her, which really is the key question he asks us all. Do you, do you believe? Do you believe not just in the doctrine of resurrection, but in him who is resurrection? Do you believe not just in life after death, but in him who is life and overcomes death? Do you believe that Jesus isn't removed from your circumstances, but actually ministers to you smack dab in the midst of them? Do you believe? Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. Yes. I believe. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, I doubt that Martha knew everything about Jesus or even all that he meant here. I doubt that she knew all that he meant here. Her faith, like ours, was still very much in process. But listen, she affirmed what she knew. She didn't know it all, but she affirmed what she knew. That, that indeed Jesus was the long-expected Messiah, the divine Son of God who had come into the world to save sinners from the curse of death. And that reassurance was exactly what Martha needed. Because the very next verse, she goes to get Mary, right? Jesus says this to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. I got this, Martha. Do you believe this? Yes, I believe. And in the very next verse, she's off to get married. As if to suggest that she has been comforted in her grief and she wants Mary to be comforted too. And so the scene shifts uh, as Martha, with this renewed hope in Christ, goes to Mary and, and tells her that that Jesus is calling for her. Initially, remember, Mary stayed behind, but after hearing from Martha, she rose quickly, it says, and went to Christ. And when she sees Jesus, she responds exactly as Martha did, saying to him in verse 32, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But notice that Mary also fell at his feet. In fact, whenever we see Mary in the Gospels, it seems she's falling at the feet of Jesus. For Mary, her disappointment and grief, hear this, did not keep her from worshiping the Lord, but compelled her to worship the Lord. For Mary... Her disappointment and grief did not keep her from worshiping the Lord, but compelled her to worship the Lord. It's a great illustration of how we can and should worship God even in our sorrow. We don't have to put on the, the, the plastic smile with Jesus. Jesus. 
we don't have to pretend we've got it all together. We don't have to fake it until we make it. Instead, we can come to him just as we are and lay ourselves and all our burdens down at his feet. We can acknowledge that we don't understand it all, that we don't understand why he does or doesn't do as we sometimes expect, and that we do do grieve. But in worship, you can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you as the scripture says. You don't have to hide your hurt. Mary didn't. And we're told that when Jesus saw her weeping and those who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he asked where Lazarus was buried and they began leading him to the tomb and Jesus began to weep. Now, as a quick aside, you know that the verse divisions aren't in the original text. The chapter and verse divisions aren't in the original text. The section headings aren't in the original text. They were added much, much later as Bible scholars sought a way to help us make our way in and around the Scriptures, to, to help us you know, become more familiar with getting from one place to another. And so those, 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 those verse divisions aren't in the original text, and sometimes, sometimes, you've probably experienced this in your reading, Sometimes it seems that those divisions get in the way. Have you ever experienced that? Like those divisions, they get in the way and that you wonder why they separated certain verses from another when it seems they go together. But I have to say that in this case, I love the verse divisions. And I think they captured the moment so well. I love that verse 35 stands all by itself. Jesus wept. Just two words. Shortest verse in the Bible. as if to draw our attention to it. To the fact that Jesus grieved too. Can you imagine being there? I mean, if there was ever a time to put yourself in this situation, this is it. picture Jesus weeping the tears streaming his nose running 
his voice cracking. Maybe his chest and shoulders convulsing. Literally, it says that he burst into tears. Or that he was breaking up inside. Picture the disciples' reaction. They were used to a... This was a side of Jesus that they weren't used to. They knew the Jesus who... who who walked through town, from town to town, with, with confidence and strength, an unusual confidence and strength, divine confidence and strength. The Jesus who made a lame man walk, the Jesus who himself walked on water, the Jesus who commanded a storm to cease, and it obeyed. They knew an all-powerful, undeterred Jesus, but had they ever seen him cry? We have no record of it except this. I doubt they ever saw him weep in this way. So let me ask you, why does Jesus weep if in a matter of mere minutes, literally, it's all going to be okay? He knew he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. He's on the way to do just that. And so he could have said, and he could have said, now, now, Mary, you know, picks her up, holds her maybe. Now, now, Mary, don't cry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Come with me. Come with me. Let's go to the tomb right now. You're about to see something that's going to blow your mind. He could have said, Mary, I know, I know you're disappointed. I know you're upset, but listen, hang in with me 10 more minutes and it will all make sense. But instead he just wept. And John wants us to know that he wept. Why? Why what does Jesus' weeping reveal? Well, it reveals that he ministers to us in our grief and even grieves with us. And these two words, Jesus wept, these two words bridge the gap between grief and the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ who enters our sufferings, empathizes with us, and even suffered for us. That's what makes Christianity what it is. Jesus is heading to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to do battle with humanity's greatest enemy, death. 
And he will get Lazarus out of death. We're going to talk about this in, in further detail in a couple weeks. He will get Lazarus out of death by entering the ring with death. And as I said last week, this whole scene of Christ's death and resurrection is a precursor to Christ's. This whole scene, I'm sorry, of Lazarus's death and resurrection is a precursor to Christ's. So if we ask the question, where is God in my grief? Where is he? And we look to the cross we still may not know what the answer is, but at least we know what it isn't. It can't be that God is detached or removed from our condition or uncaring or, or unloving because God takes our suffering so seriously that he took it on himself. He was a man of sorrows, we're told, acquainted with grief. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners from sin's curse, did so by becoming a curse for us. He suffered in our place by taking our death upon himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about he who died so that you don't have to. Ultimately, and was raised from the dead so that you too can have life in his name. And it's, and, and it's this life that Jesus is even now beginning to reveal to Martha and Mary in this scene. With Martha, he revealed the truth of himself. That he is the resurrection and the life. He, he provided a reasoned response for Martha. A theological response, if you will. One that properly framed her circumstance within the truth of who he is and what he's about so that Martha would not grieve as those without hope. But with Mary, he revealed more of the tenderness, the tender heart of God, the very deep love of God. He entered her grief and grieved with her. He knew what he was about to do in raising Lazarus from the dead, yet still he felt the depths of her despair. And it pictures the deep, deep love of Christ. So listen, Jesus is not just a Savior. He is a Savior. But he's also a dear, dear friend. Sometimes you need to make sense of things, right? You need to make sense of things. You need a reasoned response. You need a theological response that sheds the light of truth on your situation. You do. Sometimes you need a theological response that sheds the light of truth on your situation. And sometimes you don't necessarily need an answer. You need someone who understands you and understands what you're going through. What you really need in those moments is a shoulder to cry on. And someone 
who will cry with you. Jesus provides both. You know, one of the things they teach you in pastoral counseling, I've taken a couple of courses, and I've heard this more than a few times. One of the things they teach you in pastoral counseling is to, to meet reason with reason and emotion with emotion, at least at first, at first. In other words, if someone comes to you and they want to know why, they're looking for a solution. They're looking for an answer. Do your best to provide an answer. But if someone comes to you and they don't necessarily want to know why, they just want to vent and share their heart, so to speak. And, and find a safe place. Be that safe place. Now, eventually, God willing, as you spend time with this person, there's, there's time for both. But what they teach you is that at first, at the very first, meet reason with reason and emotion with emotion. And it's amazing to me how much I mess this up. And so, even this week, my wife comes to me and she just wants to vent a little. And what do I do? I want to fix it. So she's coming to me with emotion and I'm responding with reason, and what does that do to her? I'm not a safe place for her in that moment. As a matter of fact, I'm an irritant. And so it's just interesting to me. I don't want to read into the text, but it is interesting to me that that's what we see here in Jesus. In a way, we see him ministering to the head and the heart. To the head with Martha by meeting reason with reason. And to the heart with Mary by meeting emotion with emotion. What about you? Maybe you're here today and you're disappointed by the losses in life and and like Martha and Mary you're grieving the loss maybe you're in the thick of it today and you're grappling with grief and so how does this speak to you 
in closing, I just want to say that the, that the presence of grief is not the absence of faith. The presence of grief is not the absence of faith. And, and I want to just assure you that the gospel is for you too. And this passage is calling you to lean into Christ deeper, a little bit more. The gospel means that your losses, whether real or perceived, can actually lead to great gain. The gospel means that God is working His grace even in and through our grief. And all of it, always, for your greatest good as you behold the, the, the glory of the Lord. And so what can you do? Well, cling to the truth of Christ. That's what Martha did. She didn't know it all, but she affirmed what she knew. She allowed eternal truth to inform her temporary situation, and so must we. We must never allow our grief to become our accepted norm or just the way things are in life. Uh, things in our lives are always viewed best when they are viewed in the light of God's glorious truth. And then beholding the glory of the Lord, listen, sometimes means that we worship Christ even through tears. That we worship Christ even through tears. That's Mary. Sometimes weeping is the best and only response to grief. In fact, to be like Christ sometimes means to weep. But we don't weep as those without hope in Jesus, we have a Savior who moves toward us in our grief. In Christ, we have a friend who knows us and, and enters our grief and empathizes with us so we can weep with Christ and, and worship Christ at the same time. So allow the gospel to sanctify your grief. Allow the gospel to sanctify your grief. Grief despairs over what's gone or lost or broken. Grief looks to the past, right? Grief always looks to the past. Grief dwells in the past, but the gospel redeems the past. And the gospel restores the present. And the gospel renews hope in the future. We have deep, deep resources in this this passage has been very good to us. We have deep, deep resources to grieve by faith in Jesus Christ who comes to us, who calls for us, and who comforts us in our grief with his gospel. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the time we've shared. We trust and, and pray that it's been beneficial to our souls. Impress the truth, upon your, the truth of your word upon our hearts today, tonight, and throughout this next week, that we may grieve in light of the gospel for our greatest good and your great glory, we pray. Amen.